Hey everyone, it's Maurice. Before we start the show, I want to thank you all for listening and for your support, especially our Patreon members. If you're not a member of our Patreon page yet, check it out at patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you get an ad-free version of this episode. You get access to behind-the-scenes clips and videos, information on upcoming articles and reviews, and so much more. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path. All right, let's get on with the show. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked UX researcher Becca Hare what she has learned about design since working at Facebook. Um, I think how collaborative it is. I think a lot of people think about design as happening in a silo with someone who's a product designer just kind of cranking away at a design alone. But I think here it's really, really collaborative. Um, research is heavily involved, as is content strategy. And that's kind of a design trifecta that makes decisions together in a more rich way. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Buffer is looking for a mobile product designer for a remote position. And Design Action Collective is looking for a web developer slash front-end developer, as well as a production designer slash graphic designer, both in Oakland, California. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Whether it's beautiful digital art, handy tools to help you do your work, or a site for your project or cause, you'll find things on Glitch that remind us the web can still be a fun, creative place full of unexpected surprises. Get started today at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Millions of people and businesses around the world trust MailChimp to publish the right content to the right person at the right place at the right time. Build your brand, sell more stuff, find your people, and tell the world your story. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. 
Now for this week's interview. This month on Revision Path, we're focusing on Atlanta and its vibrant art scene. And this week's guest is Lisa Babb, design educator and assistant director at Museum of Design Atlanta. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am Lisa Babb, and I am the assistant director at MODA, which is the Museum of Design Atlanta, as well as professor of graphic design at Georgia Tech. Nice. Let's talk about MODA first, uh, the Museum of Design Atlanta. For people that might not be familiar with it, I would imagine they can guess it's a museum of design in Atlanta. But as the assistant director, can you kind of tell our audience some more about it? I'm always happy to talk about MODA. Before I joined, I was a huge fan, and it almost became the kind of story where if you're here every week, at a certain point, you might want to think about taking that relationship a little bit further. We are the only museum in the Southeast dedicated exclusively to the study and the celebration of all things design. And so, to be very frank, that's the stuff of dreams for me, being born and raised in New York, and then moving to Atlanta to have anything dedicated to the celebration of all things design is such a victory. So to be a part of it is just phenomenal. I really do wake up every day eager to go to work and figure out what's next, what we can do next. And I'm so lucky to work for a person who provide such opportunity where we have a very, very young staff who get to do all these things that they never would have the opportunity to do otherwise. And so it's exciting. It's extremely exciting. You never know what you're going to get. We have about three shows a year. They range in all kinds of content, every single discipline of design. It's just an awesome experience. I mean, I really have to say that Moda is like, and I know we're kind of both gushing about it, but Moda is really like a hidden gem in Atlanta. I mean, aside from it being the only museum dedicated to design in the Southeast, I mean, I've lived here for a pretty good while. I really didn't know about it until maybe a few years ago. I knew about the location of where it is because the, there's a library right above it, uh, but I didn't know about the museum itself. It wasn't, I don't know, maybe until about maybe two or three years ago that I was like, oh, wait, we have a design museum here? <laughs> <laughs> well, to, it, I love that story, except that I will tell you, it breaks my heart that we're a hidden gem. We want everybody to know if it was up to me, we would be singing from the rooftops, but we have a, a financial reality and being a nonprofit, every single thing that you know about Moda is through grit. It's through us with boots on the ground, trying to get the word out. And we're hoping people spread the word as much as possible because we don't have the money to be able to pay for the kind of advertising that others may have. I'm a little bit jealous of that, but I'm not going to put that out there too much. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you, one of those things is that when our people find us, and when I say our people, I mean people who are inclined to agree with the vision that we share of design. When our people find us, they never look back. They're always thrilled. We hear things every single day like, 
you all are doing great things. It's so important. Thank you for what you're doing. And this is the third museum I've worked in in my lifetime. It's one of the first times I hear it with such passion and vigor. And I think our message around making sure that people understand the power of design to change and to transform lives and to make the world stronger and better and smarter and more inclusive and less exclusive resonates with our audience in a way that nobody else has done that I've seen. You mentioned that, that grit, like aside from, I guess, you know, of course the financial reality of being a nonprofit is not having money for marketing or, you know, other kinds of things to sort of get the word out. But what other challenges have you found to sort of, I guess, getting Moda out there in the public to people? I think, that is the biggest challenge. But the, the other challenge we found certainly is space. We would love to be bigger. We'd love to have more space. We'd love to have more resources overall. I think space is one of those resources we'd love to have more of. We try to spill out onto our plaza as much as possible just to um, try to change the narrative around that. But the reality of a nonprofit is to try to do as much as you can with as little as you have. And I think we've been brilliant at that. I agree. And also, you know, Moda does these sort of partnerships with, you know, design and arts organizations in the city, right? We do. We partner with just about anybody. What I love about Atlanta is the opportunity for partnership. It's one of our biggest potential growth spurts there is. Quite frankly, one of the nicest components of it is since we are an epicenter of business in Atlanta, since all these businesses are starting and growing and blooming in Atlanta, there's this great opportunity to partner with all kinds of people, and, and we're friends with all of them. We all go to workshops together. We're learning how to build our audiences together. We're learning how to really make the arts design in Atlanta as common and as commonplace within dialogue as cars in Atlanta, as, quite frankly, food in Atlanta. We want to be included in those dialogues right on that first level. When you think Atlanta, I want you to think of us. And I think it's it's also worth mentioning that this is what the 25th anniversary? Yes. Of Moda? Yes. This year exactly. Yeah. We started in 1989 and we moved to this new location in 2011. And so just the growth pattern alone is beyond phenomenal. And I think it's quite frankly, all due to an executive director with vision. I've had a lot of career. I've had a lot of jobs. I've never ever worked for anybody with the capabilities that Laura has. She is a visionary and will always, always, always in my mind be foremost thought of as a visionary. She's been brilliant at how to grow this museum. Yeah. And, and for those that are listening, the Laura that we're, we're talking about is Dr. Laura Flushi, who's the executive director of Moda. Yeah, she's phenomenal, doing great work, great work. 
brilliant. And and you never know what she's going to come up with. I mean, literally in the morning when I come into work, some days you can't imagine the things she's envisioning. And some days she can't imagine the things I'm envisioning. And <laughs> we, we live for that. I mean, I think we push each other. I'm lucky enough to call her friend. We were friends long before I started working there. And the people that I call friend are people that I respect imminently. And she's just, she's brilliant. It's brilliant how she's grown it all. What are some of the current sort of exhibitions that are on view right now at Moda? So right now we're showing Making Change, which is the art and craft of activism. And what I love about this particular exhibition is expanding a conversation around design. The way I was trained around design, craft wasn't a part of that dialogue. In fact, the way I was trained, it was almost a dirty word, the notion of craft within design. Not craftsmanship, but craft itself. This exhibition is about very difficult topics, hard topics on soft surfaces. And so if I said to you, on a casual day, let's talk about the water crisis in Flint. That's not a conversation that most people are interested in having, at least probably without cocktails involved, because it's (laughs) enough to make you want to either drink or curse or, or both. If I put that on a very soft quilt using iridescent colors and threads and spiraled it into a circle where you see that it started as one specific incident and continued to grow into this almost uncontrollable spiral. It's a more accessible topic, and it's something that I can talk about with different audiences as opposed to just the believers. So to speak, not necessarily just preaching to the choir. And I think the notion of craft opens that opportunity. It brings in more audiences that you could do with just a straight, hard statistical data that is a disaster like the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. So this exhibition means a lot simply because activism is the core of who I am. It's always going to be who I am. And so the notion of all these people meeting these causes where they are and doing what they know how to do in order to say something that moves that dialogue further is a great great, great opportunity. Yeah, that's amazing. I need to make it down there and, and check that exhibit out before it leaves in September, right? September 9th. September exactly. 9th. I need to make it make it down there before then. And so with these exhibitions, I know you kind of have ones that are sort of, you say, three shows a year, right? Yes. Do you know what's coming up in the future, by chance? Absolutely. Next up is Design for Good, which is architecture that moves humanity forward. It's going to be very exciting to have an architectural show again. We love embracing architecture and and bringing that audience. I mean, I think that's one of the moda feats is how do we bring all this disparate audiences together and make them understand that design is that unifying thread. Coming up is an incredible exhibition around music and sound We always have really exciting things in the hopper, so please stay tuned. Oh, I definitely will. And hopefully, you know, people that are listening will will do that as well. That's great. 
let's talk more about your career. You've, you know, mentioned just now you've worked for different museums. I mean, I know that you have just a, a huge career across design, not just as, you know, working for museums, but you've worked as a design educator. You've worked as a designer. Let's kind of go back to your like early, early days. You said that, you, you know, being an artist, so I think we mentioned this kind of before we started recording that, you know, kind of being an artist and being into design wasn't really something that was supported or something that was sort of pushed as an option for you when you were growing up. No, it was quite the opposite. I went to college pre-med <laughs> oh. and about, yes, that was the beginning. I am an inner science geek. I would rather, <laughs> I'd rather do scientific stuff than just about anything on any given day. You give me a chemistry set, I'm the happiest I'm ever going to be. <laughs> but the math component really kind of made that chemistry tough for me. So I was a terrible undergraduate student. I was really very, very good at traveling with the football team mm-hmm. and uh, missing class on Monday and Friday. I was excellent at that. I was terrible <laughs> at, at the math components of the science in college. And so I needed to figure out what was next. And I still remember that difficult conversation calling dad and telling him that I decided to study design instead of pre-med. And his exact response, true quote, okay, you have gone and lost your damn mind. Oh, wow. Uh, that, was, that was the quote. And he said, you're really just fooling around and this doesn't make any sense. And so it's time for you to come home, which was the best thing he could have said in this way, being from New York. And at that time I was at Notre Dame studying Mm -hmm. design in Indiana is not such a great idea if you're from New York. So coming back home was a great idea for me. And he kind of played right into my hands with that component, but he was furious. They, my entire family thought that I really had gone off the deep end. I remember my sister distinctly saying to me, we're not creative. We don't have art in our family. This is not in our genes. This is a huge mistake. So it was beyond not encouraged. It was actively and aggressively discouraged. That actually kind of brings me to a question that uh, has come from Fahamu Peku, who you're familiar with. Hopefully the audience knows about him. He was just on the show last week. He had a question for you about, you know, of course, you're a design educator and we'll get into that. But now looking at, you know, kind of what you've done and where you've been, how would you try to change that narrative so parents can sort of understand that this is a lucrative career so they can push more people, more young artists and designers into the field? So the good thing about 2018 is that culture and society is helping me with that argument more than my words ever could. When I decided to study graphic design, nobody knew what that was. Every time people would say, what are you studying? I'd say graphic design. They'd say, what's that? Every single person. And I'm from New York. So nobody knew within my circles, nobody knew what that meant. In 2018, every single person you meet knows at least one working graphic designer. So society is moving that dialogue 
so much further than I ever could. But I think one of the notions that we have to make sure people understand is that from the time you wake up in the morning until the time you go to bed, you are absolutely surrounded by design. It is the most ubiquitous of all the forms of communication. It is everywhere all the time. And so somebody has to make that stuff. Somebody is in point of fact making that stuff. If it can be them, why not you? Why shouldn't it be you? Why wouldn't it be able to be you? And nobody really can answer that question in a way that makes sense to me. So to me, I think it's a question of picking up your head and looking around you. And instead of being visually desensitized to what things are, understanding that within my purview, within my vision right now, and absolutely within yours is are at least seven aspects of design just about every time. Yeah, I agree that certainly everything around us in some kind of way has been designed. The buildings we live in, the cars we drive, chairs we sit in, et cetera. Someone had to design all of that. You know, even if you're not just looking at it from strictly like a visual standpoint, like illustration or even Photoshop or something like that, industrial design, I think that, you know, that can also kind of be a key for people to really look at and see how much design plays into their everyday lives. And I mean, I think one of the issues is that great design is largely undetected. Mm. We take it for granted. I see that. I can see that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> so going back to what you were saying, so you came back to New York and you ended up going to Baruch College. Is that right? I went to Baruch, which was the only city university that had design at the time. And of course, I did not have a portfolio because I had been pre-med and more accurately majoring in being really good at partying. So <laughs> I had no portfolio. I couldn't go to the fabulous design schools and all that stuff. And one of the mandates from in my dad's house was, you don't have to work. You can go to school. You don't have to go to school. You can go to work. But if you live in this house, you will do one of those things at all times. And the second you decide you're not doing one of those, that's the time for you to go. And so I knew I needed to work and I knew I needed to go to school and stopping that education in order to build a portfolio was not an option for me. So I just needed to immediately pick back up the very next semester and get myself into school. So, yeah, I went to Baruch, which was the only CUNY that had design at the time and just had to make it work. It was so spotty, my undergraduate career, because at that point I was in a race against time. I wanted to finish as quick as I could and get working as quick as I could just to kind of quell the naysayer in my house and be able to show them that it was viable, that this was not some kind of a crazy, whimsical pipe dream that should have been a hobby. In order to be able to quell it all, I needed to work as quick as possible. So in undergrad, my job was to get it done as quick as possible. And then from there, what did you do? So from there, I was super lucky. That's when the good luck actually started. And, and that's another difference between studying then and studying now. You could do some crazy notion called learning on the job back then. <laughs> now, 
Can't do that now. Can't so do that now. Now, you know, they expect you to know it all and be able to teach from your first day. It, it wasn't like that at all. It was come in and let us show you how this thing works. And so I was really fortunate. I got a job as a production assistant and it was crazy. It was just a terrible, terrible job, but it was phenomenal in that I learned from some real masters who had the courage to tell me that I didn't know anything, but that they would teach me. And that really made it worthwhile. And I think that was the foundation that launched the great career because there I learned lots of humility. And I learned that the smartest thing I would know was not to fixate on what I knew, but to really focus and, and search for what I didn't know and learn that. And that was where that all started. Wow. You later ended up attending Pratt Institute. Tell me what uh, your time was like there. So that was where I'm starting to live the dream on a high, high level. The thing about my graduate education, and as much as I was a terrible undergraduate student, I was a much, much better graduate student because I wanted it more and I knew the value of it more. I paid for that through two jobs while I went to school. And so there was no notion of flunking a class and taking it over or anything like that. But you can imagine that being a designer, working as a designer and not having gone to what I considered one of the proper design schools was a bit of a of an issue for me, that little doubt in my head all the time, my undergraduate had been so spotty. And even though I was working as a designer, making at that time really good money, doing well, I just didn't have the confidence that I needed. And that was what led to the decision to go to grad school. And that also was another unpopular decision. I mean, everybody said, you have jobs. Why are you going to grad school? Why would you study more of this? You're doing okay. Nobody really seemed to understand that. Everybody at that time thought that to go to grad school in design is because you want to teach. And I didn't necessarily want to teach. I just wanted to feel more confident in design. And so Pratt was always the dream. I had taken a class at SBA and it was at that time a great school, but it, it really didn't feel right for me. Pratt did. Mm. The people connected with me. I loved my faculty there. Don Ariev was really good to me who ran the department at the time. I just had good connection. I even adored the librarian there. So <laughs> it was just, it was a good moment for me. And I found out I was not the worst student anymore. And I also found out I knew more than I thought I did about design. So that was, that was a good, it was very, very great for my design self-esteem. Pratt changed my whole life. Wow. We've nope. had several, we, it's funny, we've had several guests on the show that have really spoken super highly about Pratt. I mean, mostly, well, I'd say a good number of them have came from actually from an HBCU. There was like a, it seemed like at a time there was like a pipeline between Hampton University in Virginia and Pratt Institute. But it really sounds like, I mean, it sounds like it was just a really great, supportive, affirmative, you know, kind of place. It was great, supportive and affirmative. And I think, you know, Pratt's gone through its evolutions. It's gone up, down, all kinds of stuff, just like all, all colleges do. But at that particular time, 
Our faculty was very diverse. And whatever your real point of view within design was, there was at least one person who you could identify with that would always take you under their wing and shepherd you through distilling your visions a little bit clearer, stronger, better. And I was so, I felt unbelievably fortunate all the time that I was there. I mean, one of the interesting segues that you'll absolutely love is that I did not properly apply to Pratt in the beginning. I kept going to the campus. I even bought my apartment nearby in Brooklyn. Mm. And I would go to the campus around the end of every summer and just go get booklets and brochures and things like that. And this one wonderful admissions person at one point said, you should just take a class, just take, take a non-degree class and just see what happens. And I was like, cause I remember thinking that I wasn't ready to take on graduate school still with the confidence issue. And she said, just take a non-degree class, just take one and, and see what happens. And the rest, as they say, is history. It all started with that one person leaning in. Tell me about this thesis about black cowboys. My favorite topic in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? I'm going to tell you what that came from. I am a cultural fiend. My favorite thing in the whole world is to be any place sitting still and just observing. It is the single best thing in the world. So I'm in Brooklyn and I buck up at the street festival on these cowboys, these black cowboys in Brooklyn. And I'm going, okay, they dressed up for the day, you know, almost like how you have a, a birthday party and somebody comes dressed as a clown. I really thought they dressed up, that somebody paid for some cowboys and they showed up and they said, one of the guys said to me, nah, girl, we the real deal, come check us out. And I thought, yeah, right. You know, you gotta be kidding me. And he said, we have stable. I was like, "You do, where do you have stables? He told me exactly where it was. And I went the very next day and it blew my mind. I mean, I, of course, had read Buffalo Soldiers, all these things. I knew all this history around our legacy, but I just didn't know that anybody was still doing that. So I went there one day and just couldn't leave and then went back and then started going just about every weekend because it, it was it was mind boggling. These guys worked for Verizon during the week. You know, somebody worked for Con Edison during the week. And then every weekend they would spend all their time at the stables mm -hmm. in their cowboy regalia. And they considered themselves black cowboys and everybody else did too. And, the, and if you talk to them one by one, they would talk about, their lineage and where they had come from and the cowboys in their history and Buffalo soldiers in their particular family lineage. And it just became so overwhelmingly fascinated that I could not stop. And so finally I had to figure out a way to make this relevant to Pratt and relevant to design. And it became relevant to advertising. And I figured out that the link was, and this is kind of, for me, very fascinating, but one of the most iconic images that we have in the American 
vernacular is of the cowboy. It is the icon. Tony Despina, who was my thesis advisor, said, every boy wants to be a cowboy at some point. I love that. That was the hook that started the story. And it became this notion of black men being left out of that particular component of culture and the American iconography claiming that and then connecting it to this rich history, this rich legacy of Buffalo soldiers and then advertising and design, leaving all that food on the table blew my mind. You've never seen Western campaigns or advertising campaigns that feature black and Latino cowboys, but you always saw the ones with whites as cowboys, you know, Marlboro man, name them, Stetson, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that just started it all for me. Wow. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I'm really trying to think. I know, uh, no, when I think about like black men in advertising in terms of like, I guess, symbols or mascots or icons, uh, Uncle Ben comes to mind. Right. Uh, the chef of the cream of wheat box. Like, exactly. <laughs> not a lot. Wow. It actually reminds me of a, a conversation I had here on the podcast with Dr. Ann Barry. And she mentioned this book. It's about. It's about blacks and advertising. It's called Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, and Rastus, who's the chef. Yes. Cream of wheat, wheat box. Blacks and advertising yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I didn't even think about that with cowboys, but now that you mention it, because uh, when you think about, I guess, sort of just what is the iconography that represents this country, that represents America? It's like the American flag, baseball, apple pie, cowboys, like that whole kind of rugged homestead, that whole aesthetic. People of color have largely been left out of that. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And if you check the history, that's not historically accurate. Right. We were absolutely in it. Yep. That is a hundred percent true. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what ended up drawing you here to Atlanta? I mean, it sounds like you were kind of making away for yourself and learning everything that you were learning in New York. What drew you down here? This is the, the funny story in our household. I like to say that I was heavily recruited by my husband, who is a native Atlantan. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> we met in Vegas, ironically. And I said, where are you from? And he told me Atlanta. And I said, oh, well, you know, I, I live in Brooklyn. Nice to meet you, that kind of thing. We exchanged numbers. I figured I'd never hear from him again. I didn't, I wasn't even sure why we should exchange numbers. And he said, Atlanta's just a plane ride away. And at that, at that time, I was not necessarily accustomed to coming to Atlanta. When I flew, I flew out of the country to see amazing new things that I never would have seen in my home. So the thought of going to Atlanta was not terribly interesting. Mm -hmm. And he spent a long time making it very interesting. <laughs> he made a case. He did. And it worked. <laughs> when did you move here to Atlanta? So I moved to Atlanta 12 years ago, if you could believe it. I still can't even believe it's been that long because it's such it's such a different Atlanta than it was then. Yeah. See, 12 I years mean, ago. So that was what, 2006? Like, yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Exactly. And boy, I'll tell you what, it's not even the same place. Mm-mm. 
<laughs> it sure ain't. <laughs> Not at all. When you first got down here, what did you think of Atlanta, like compared to New York as it relates to design? What did you think of the city? I was just beyond frustrated. I would almost say just, I was stunned. I was stunned that opportunity was so paltry. Just, it was stunning to me that I think I had the biggest cultural crash there was. And I wasn't aware that I had gotten so used to being overstimulated and all these things that I just wasn't, I wasn't cognizant of how different this place was than New York. I was always clear that it wasn't New York, no question, but I really wasn't clear how different it was. And even worse for me, I didn't live in the city at the time. I lived all the way out in Palmetto. Oh, and wait, that was tough. That was mm, tough. Yeah. It was brutal. When you say that you weren't clear about how different it was, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like how particularly was it different? So I, I think, first of all, the first shocking thing, I mean, I was fortunate in that I was able to get jobs even before I got here. I was able to to get jobs. So I did have work, but just an inner design community. There was all kinds of things happening in New York around design all the time. And I didn't have to work so hard to find them or get access to them and get stimulated in a way that made, that made me want to make design. Mm -hmm. In Atlanta, it was the opposite. You really had to fight to find inspiration and collaboration and even people to talk to about design. That was the first very, very difficult thing. And then I would also say with regard to labor practices, there was a whole different mentality here around labor practices and, and things that were shocking to me, like health insurance. I mean, people would say at job interviews, oh, and you'll get benefits. Like it was this big carrot they were dangling, <laughs> right? And in New York, it was like, yeah, of course you're going to give me benefits. What am I not going to have health care? Like it wasn't even a, a conversation. <laughs> you give me give me a little PTSD flashback here because I certainly have been in those interviews on that side where they offer you the job, but it doesn't have benefits. You're just kind of working as a contractor or something. And, you know, you're, you're on your own for anything else. The notion of healthcare, you know, before this country started taking it on, the notion of healthcare wasn't something I even considered until I moved to Atlanta. It was a given. I've mm -hmm. never had a job in my life that didn't give you benefits. That wasn't even wasn't even considered the, the levels of harassment, things like that in the workplace, commonplace workplace things that I saw in Atlanta would have landed you on the news in New York. Wow. That was shocking. Absolutely shocking. And I know that I've been on the receiving end of a lot of that. So like my first design job that I got here in the city was in 2005. I was working for the state of Georgia and it was also the first job where I, where I had benefits. I mean, I had been working well before then here in the city, but it was the first job that I had where I had benefits. I wasn't making a lot of money. I mean, it was a state job, so it, it was not lucrative, 
but the amount of freedom that I had to sort of do certain things and a lot of creative freedom was great. Ended up having to leave that job because my boss at the time, which ended up then just kind of becoming the whole department, was wildly abusive. I mean, not just verbal abuse. It ended up going to physical abuse. Like, don't put your hands on me. I think that I'm not going to say something. Like, my boss was a white woman. She doesn't live here in Atlanta, so I don't care. But, like, my boss was a white woman, and she would hit you. If you oh. walk by and she would, you know, kind of try to say it and or she would try to couch it in this sort of like, oh, buddy, buddy, I'm just Josh. And I'm like, don't put your hands on me. Don't yeah. touch me. And it got to the point where, I mean, we mediated all the way up to the state level and I ended up having to leave because the company was on her side. HR was on her side. And I was just like the black guy that was making trouble. So I was like, well, let me take myself out the situation because clearly I've done what I could within the confines of trying to, you know, do the right thing. And honestly, because it was my first design job, I thought this was how it was. I just thought this was like part of the thing. I would tell my mom about it and she's like, well, you know, you got to pay your dues. And I'm like, well, I guess this is paying my dues. In hindsight, that is not paying your dues. That shit is abusive. No, abuse, <laughs> abuse is abuse. And Maurice, honest to God, it is almost the exhibition that we should put up. The things that people are trying to abide, especially young people, young in their career, because uh, frankly, they don't know better and they're scared that they'll never get another job or they'll never, you know, they'll tell everybody and I'll never, I'm ruined in this town. But Mm -hmm. the things that are people, that people are trying to abide under the guise of work within the design community is beyond deplorable. And that is one of the worst forms of, of abuse that I had seen as a professor of 17 years teaching. The things that my uh, alum would come back and tell me was going on. And I was sheltered from that by being a full-time professor for so long. But even once, you know, going back out into the workplace and Seeing what people expected, Mm -hmm. given my pedigree and experience, tells me that it is absolutely true. What people expect and and do, it, it just will blow your mind. That is the book that should be written, but nobody would believe it. I don't know. I feel like now some people might believe it. I think, you know, now that we start to hear more about stories of abuse across several different industries get out there in the world, I think it's possible. I mean, if something like that came out, I think folks would believe it. More people would speak out about it, I think, than than you think. It just blows my mind. I mean, some of some of the things that I have alum coming back and telling me, it's unconscionable. And quite frankly, the mentality here had always been, you are lucky to have this job. And Mm. in New York, that was not my experience at all. In New York, everybody knew that if you left there today, there were a million other places that you could work. So both parties were invested in making it a great experience. Whereas here, the mentality was, you're lucky I, I took you on kind of a thing. And so it, it, I think it starts to create this mentality within designers that somehow we should try to withstand 
unacceptable behavior. And we wouldn't do it, most of us, in our regular everyday lives. We wouldn't do it, most of us, in our regular everyday relationships. Yet, within design, we somehow believe that we are required to accept and tolerate that. And that just blows my mind. Ooh, do you think it's changed? Not nearly as much as it needs to, quite mm-hmm. frankly. We are true to form, you know, we are moving too slowly away from that. Oh, I don't want to just like give my experiences about this, but I, I mean, when you said that part about employers kind of saying you're lucky, you know, you're lucky to be here. I heard that at every design job I had until I quit and started my studio in 2008. Everyone at Georgia, when I worked at WebMD, I especially heard that when I worked at AT&T. And that was, that experience was, I don't wish that on my worst enemy to work for that company here. I just, that is a really, I mean, that was a sweatshop, essentially. It was like a design sweatshop. Like, like you'd come in and you would get your your packet of work you'd have to do. And it just kind of went down the assembly line and there was no, no end in sight. And the managers would always let you know how lucky you are to work for a place where the work is always coming in because you could, because you could work for one of these ad agencies or you could be working for yourself and not have work. You should be lucky. Honestly, like the managers would tell us that they'd get us all together for these monthly meetings and would tell us how lucky we are to work there as the workplace. So Essentially, what they had was that every piece of work that you did, they assigned a point value to it. Yes. And so you had to reach a certain number of points by the end of the week to like meet your quota. It was almost, it was very salesy in that way. Oh, it is an assembly line. Yeah. And so essentially, what ended up happening is that as more work came in, the point values for the work that you did got lower, but the quota for how much work you had to do got higher. And so you just had to keep doing more and more and more. And, the, and we would complain about it. And the managers would just keep telling us how lucky we are. And granted, most of us were contractors, so we're not getting any kind of benefits or anything. It's all hourly wage stuff. And they're yeah. like, you should be grateful to be working for this company and have this work coming in. And how dare you, blah, blah, blah. When I found out at one point that I was getting underpaid and had to like get all my back pay and everything after I had gotten the promotion but was still getting paid a lower rate, that's when I quit. I was like, I can't, I was sort of fed up with the design industry that this was 2008. I was like fed up. I was like, I can't do it because the job system for designers here in Atlanta is just, I can't do it. I can't. And I thought that's how it was everywhere. No. Um, And I had friends that were in New York that were saying, no, it's not like that up here. Honestly, in New York, they would tell me that. And for a while I was really trying to get out of Atlanta and move to New York or move somewhere where design was respected more, you know, at least in terms of businesses and stuff like that. But I mean, I worked my studio for nine years. Now I work for a company, which is based out of New York, um, <laughs> doing design work. And it's right. great. It's wonderful. I feel respected and I'm treated well. And it's like a, a whole new world, essentially. But yeah, I don't know if it's changing fast enough because I still hear when I like go to AIGA events or I talk to younger designers like, it's still, the culture here is still pretty toxic in that way. Um, yes, in terms of not just for even for people that are, I guess, experienced designers, but you know, I think because there are so many art schools here, like there's Art Institute, there's yes. Portfolio Center, there's SCAD, et cetera, there's right. always going to be this flush of young designers out there in the market. 
And there's always going to be these businesses that exploit that. Right. So you've got them working for these lower wages, longer hours, et cetera. Like I have people saying, people from like San Francisco are like, oh, I'm thinking of moving to Atlanta to uh, find a job. And when I look around, I can't find anything. I'm like, yeah, well, good luck. Because it's yeah. really about who you know, and it's not about the merit. It's, I'm sorry, I, I just want to want a complete negative tangent there, but you, you, you triggered something in me about that. Well, like it's and, and oh, but Maurice, that's one of the things. There's there's two points to that. Number one is the universality of that. That is one thing that I'm proud to say that as people of color, we don't have the lock on that within Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Designers are universally exploited. I know white women. I know, you know, I know, and heaven forbid, sorry, the international students who are desperate to try to become, you know, Mm -hmm. to try to get that design job that will sponsor them. The things that the stories that they, some of them have told me that they have been trying to withstand with the carrot dangling in front of them of Mm -hmm. potential sponsorship even if it's not true, will blow your mind. So that, to me, unfortunately, is a universal design thing. Design doesn't have the respect it deserves here yet. And then the second point to that is, if we separate just the humanity out of that for a moment, which I'm I'm not necessarily usually a person to do, but let's just take take the humanity component out of that for a moment. And let's just talk about the work. Mm -hmm. Creativity can't happen on a habit trail. Mm. So if you've got me trying to churn things out as quick as possible, as much as possible and as fast as possible, the results by and large will be formulaic and stayed. Yep. You can't create under those conditions and deliver at high levels well all the time. Most people cannot. It takes a long level of experience to be able to do that. So there's that famous Paula Cher quote of, you know, it took her 15 minutes to do the city logo on the napkin, but it took 50 years to get to that 15 minutes. Young designers, right? Young designers can't create at that fast clip and have it be original and fresh and invigorating and inspiring. And that's the saddest component of it, that it's not good for the work. Amen to that. Wow. I, yeah, you got me going on a whole thing there about it, but especially with international students, I had a, actually a friend here, a friend, he's from India. His husband is from, I think like, South Georgia. He is originally from India. He went to college in Canada, moved down here to Atlanta, and had been trying to get sponsored for the longest time. I think maybe for about two years he was down here. And yeah, there would be those employers that would like dangle it in front of him. And it just never came through. He ended up having to move to California in order to make it happen. And I mean, he's a great designer, great UX designer, could have been a great talent here in Atlanta, but now California's got them, you know. There are way too many of those stories, way too many. Yeah. So I guess to that end, what would you like to see more of, I guess, from the design community here? Like, what do you think, if you could wave a magic wand, what changes would do you think would need to be made? Oh, you know, it's time, Atlanta. I would say it is time, Atlanta. It's time. 
we cannot call ourselves the business epicenter. Look at all the corporations that are headquartered here right now. More coming all the time. Porsche, Brigham, Mercedes, all of them. Number one in film. Daimler and, and Mercedes, the Governor Deal just made a statement yesterday about some new headquarters that are coming and how Atlanta or Georgia, more importantly, as a whole, is considered number one for business with all the incentives. Amazon H2 considering Atlanta, all these things coming here, all this big business, the Tech Innovation Center, all these things happening, brand new, number one, all this stuff. We can't keep saying that and have Atlanta not become a design epicenter. It doesn't jive. And so you've got all these places coming here, starting up and getting designers from all these other locations when, as you said, we we're graduating all these great designers. We have all these great designers. The majority of their clients happen to be in other locations and all these businesses here getting designers from other locations. Why can't we connect that? Yeah. And this is what I love about Moda. We are constantly and consistently in dialogue around that very issue. How do we build a design ecosystem within Atlanta. It's always what we talk about. And we want to be one of the entities trying to solve that. But I would say to some of these design firms within Atlanta, don't leave us out on our own to do that. Let's engage in a hearty dialogue around what's real. Coca-Cola is not the only gig in town. <laughs> I mean, it's funny right? when I had Fahamu on the show, Last week, it was so interesting hearing him talk about the institutional support that the city has for art, but not necessarily for design. And I, I think even with, you know, the way that the city is starting to embrace art and murals and all this kind of stuff, I even feel like that's something that had to be pretty, like, fought for pretty hardly. I mean, pretty hard, I should say. Yes. Uh, but he was saying that, you know, yeah, there's like such good institutional support here from businesses and the city about art. And I'm thinking it ain't that way for design. No, no, it is not. And, and we have to change that and we have to join up in order to change that. I mean, I think what happens within design is that we tend to be entities that put our heads down and work as much as possible because when the work comes, we want to be doing the work. We want to be designers. We don't want to be politicians necessarily. We have points of view and we want to say what we think to a certain level, but mostly we want to just design. Yeah. And we have to realize that there is this responsibility if we are to change that narrative, this responsibility to get up and be communal and be supportive and unified around this notion of making our message clear, making our value clear and making sure people understand that we can do it right here. We don't have to go outside to get that done. And we just haven't been great at that so far. We're better than we were, but we're not great yet. Yeah. It always kind of is interesting to me how Sometimes Atlanta won't realize what it has in its artistic talent until it leaves. 
Like it has to leave and go somewhere else. And someone else has to say, oh, look at this great success story out of Atlanta for Atlanta to then say, oh, yeah, well, you know, they're from here. But yet when they were here, they were struggling, scraping by, not getting the support that they needed. And that's across a number of different creative fields. It's not just design, but I think specifically I've seen that more from design. Exactly. And and similarly, we've got all these people from all these other places, at least at Motive. For example, Bonnie Siegler was here last week and she said, what you guys are doing is phenomenal. People come, they fall in love with us and they are from all these other places. And it's almost like, oh, good. Can you tell people in Atlanta? (laughs) (laughs) I tell people that same thing about honestly about Revision Path. The same thing. I can go to New York or San Francisco or wherever. Like I was just up in New York for the gala. And yeah, I was being recognized, but people knew the show. They loved it. Like, oh, can we have coffee? Can we do this? Can we do that? Here in this city, in Atlanta? Chop liver. Chop liver. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I get it. Oh, my goodness. Let's talk about your, your career as a design educator long story career you've you've been in design education for 15 years over the past 15 years i should say you've taught at pace university at art institute of new york city at your alma mater baruch college you've taught at scad now you're at at georgia tech how have you seen design education change over this period of time it's been interesting i think that one of the biggest things that i've seen happen is that we have to spend much, much, much more time kind of erasing so much exposure to bad design and those students believing that that is what to aspire to and that it is good design. I think that the exposure level is so high these days. They've seen and been inundated with so much bad design at this point that we have to spend more time first scrubbing that away before we can even start to talk about what is good design because the goals that they go for even coming into college what they see as the end result looking like and what kind of work they'd like to create is not necessarily what any academic institution would want them to aspire to what are your thoughts on kind of the present state of design education i mean you're a black woman teaching design. I would imagine that's pretty rare. It is. <laughs> it's so rare. <laughs> what are your thoughts on on kind of just design education? I mean, aside from what you mentioned about bad design, but just as a whole, how do you see it from your unique vantage point? I mean, I still think that that within design, just like within society as an entity, there's still way too much ism, way too much stereotype. I had a colleague at SCAD tell a student that they would do black design because that was, because it was a black student. Hmm. Interesting. And that student came What, what does that me. even mean? Exactly, right? But, you know, what we can understand is that it was not meant to be congratulatory. Oh, no, no, absolutely right? not. And so one of the things that I said to her, you know, I was trying to mask my response to be honest with you but one of the things I said to her was the goal is to do good design isn't that why you came here yeah right and then hopefully later on great design and then hopefully later on remarkable design 
that inspires envy for those coming up. But that's really the goal. You know, there's not black design. There's good design. There's not white design. There's good design. And there's also bad design. So I still think that that is prevalent within every entity as it is in society. But design education is getting better than it ever was. Unfortunately, all schools are not created equal. Some schools do the habit trail notion of trying to churn out as many as fast as possible. And you can see the differences. I think one of the biggest problems that I've seen over time in design education is this quest around success measured in bodies walking out the door and getting jobs versus people who know how to do great design. And so I think how we see that manifesting is portfolios that people present, but they haven't done the work their professors have, and they can't sustain that level of design. Those kinds of things are happening because the focus is on getting people in jobs so you have the optics and the metrics. It used to be that you went to school to be well-educated. Mm-hmm. So I wish we could talk about that more. You know what I mean? I wish I wish more schools were invested in that. But the business of education is big business. Yeah, and I mean, even now, when you look at our government trying to merge, like, the Department of Education and the Department of Labor. Right. Like, it further drives that, that point home of, like, you're going to school to get a job. Not exactly. about, you know, educating yourself or, or even about just learning more about a subject that you like. I always get weird responses from people when I tell them my degree is in math. And right. they're like, math? But you're a designer. Although there are many people that will tell me I'm not a designer because I have a degree in math. It's a very weird thing. But, but yeah, it, it turns into, it's a numbers game. It's not about, are you really kind of contributing to the design culture? It's about does your program graduate these many number of students that go on to these jobs so you look like a more credible design institution when really, I mean, isn't that what trade schools do? That kind of sounds like a trade school model. Exactly. Yeah. What's next for you? Do you have uh, like a dream project that you want to do? Is there any goals that you really want to accomplish for the rest of the year? Boy, I'll tell you what. My focus right now is trying to balance this new reality of Moda with Georgia Tech. Tech is its own challenge because I'm used to teaching graphic design to people who want to study graphic design and work in graphic design as a major. Mm -hmm. And at Tech, it's different. (laughs) So it's quite a lovely challenge to teach graphic design to engineers and industrial designers. Their brains really kind of need the knowledge delivered in a different way and and to teach the architects. It's really exciting challenge. And so that's sometimes really hard to do and very interesting. Anything that's hard is exciting for me. And then at Moda, we are in this beautiful growth spurt. My big quest there is how do we go to the next level? And then of course, after that, how do we get to the next level after that? And so on and so forth. 
We are applying for a couple of really exciting grants. So I'm not going to say anything about those because okay. my feet <laughs> and toes are crossed. But once we get them, I can't wait to let you know about them. But all of our focus has become how do we get people to understand that museums are for everybody? How do we draw people to Moda that would never have gone to a museum? How do we move the conversation forward around design? How do we create an ecosystem of design in Atlanta? How do we create that? And that's really how we answer that every week is different. We're constantly thinking of more and more things to do to answer that question. And, and this is, I live for that. It's what I've always wanted to do is make healthier communities that were more inclusive. I didn't go to museums when I was a kid with my family. It was only a, a field trip, you know, in school you went to the Museum of Natural History, you went to the aquarium, that was it. We didn't as a family go to visit museums at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that should die, that idea. I mean, I think Moda is doing great with their programming that is really like geared towards families, like bringing yes. folk, like bringing in kids to like do the Legos. And I think there's like even like some cross stitching. I think at one point there was a, there was a cross stitching workshop and stuff like that. So really doing things to like open up and let the community know that the museum isn't just, like you said, a field trip destination. It's part of the community. Exactly. And we're also doing lots of workshops for corporate entities around design thinking and things like that. So we want our message everywhere. I mean, we want people to understand that that access to design and especially thinking as a designer and that frame of approaching any kind of a problem is good for everybody. And so we want that message to be palpable for just about every demographic, especially ones that haven't been celebrated. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Well, you know, Lisa, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? Everybody who knows me will tell you that's the, the funniest question in the world for me because I'm seriously... <laughs> not found Um, typically simply because I always used to say I'm not on Facebook because I want to keep my job as as a teacher, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I am on LinkedIn. I joined Instagram as all new Lisa at Gmail. I am on Moda, but I haven't, I've been so busy. We haven't even put me on that site yet. So that will be happening imminently. And so Anybody who wants to see me can always come to Moda and check us out or email me at lbab at museumofdesign.org. I always, always, always want to meet people there and walk them through an exhibition and talk to them about how to take the dialogue further. I never want to not talk about design. And the good news about my life is that I get to do it for a living and nobody's happier about that than my family because up until then I was killing them with it. (laughs) So, so yeah, come to the museum and, and check it out. 
All right. That sounds good. Well, Lisa Babb, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I mean, your whole career as a educator, as a designer, now working in this capacity with Museum of Design Atlanta, I mean, I think you are such an asset to this city in terms of a, I guess, advocate for design. And it's something that I feel like has been missing. I mean, I've been here in Atlanta since 99. I've seen Atlanta change over at least two or three times in that respect in a lot of different ways. But the one thing that sort of has been constant, which is what we've talked about in this interview, is that, you know, design just hasn't been respected that much here. As a working designer, as a hopefully public designer, it's just not something that people are talking about. And it's not something that felt like it was um, as much a part of this city as, say, if you were a music artist or working in big business or something. And I feel like with the work that you're doing as an educator and with Moda is really kind of helping to advocate for the role of the designer here in the city. And it's something that I am just truly, truly grateful for. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to continuing our friendship. It's been every single time we see each other at those events. I'm always happy to see you. It's, it's like a kindred spirit because I know that you and I have been through lots of the same kind of circumstances within this career and within Atlanta as well. So I just think that I feel like there's so many more of us that need to um, start showing ourselves and stop putting our heads down and working in our own little caves, if you will. And, um, <laughs> and you know, join us out here making some community happen. We look forward to it, you know? Yeah. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Lisa Babb and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Lisa and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. With a community of over 2 billion people, the design team at Facebook works on a diverse range of problems. Everything that Facebook designs is done at scale, so research, content strategy, data, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Now, if you've seen Glitch, you might think that it looks like a toy, but let me tell you, it's not. It runs on the exact same infrastructure and engine that the best developers in the world use to run their apps. And it's all built around a friendly community of coders, designers, developers, activists, artists, educators, basically people just like you. So get started on making something awesome today at glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, 
a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show, not just here in the U.S., but internationally as well. Um, It helps the show in general by just sort of bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.